kind of what we're trying to do at Tema, right? This taking active management to thematics. I genuinely think it's the next big idea. I just really firmly believe the next generation is going to make really good investment products. This is the mission that I've bought into, and I really, really believe that what I want to deliver to the market is these actively managed thematic funds that really haven't existed before, that are just good investment products. And I think that that idea of applying active management to thematics is actually quite novel. It's not talked about as much as it should be. Welcome, Yuri. It's great to have you on the show. So how are things? Um, yeah, really good. Um, it's hot out there in London and uh, just made my way here to the studio and uh, after long, so far already a long day of work. But yeah, really happy to be here. Yeah, great. Um, and are you based in London? Yeah, we've got offices in New York City and in London. Uh, we're predominantly a US business, but we have an office here in, in London near Victoria. Yeah, fantastic. So as we discuss, I want to start with kind of an introductory question that's going to alert listeners to a focus of today's interview, and then we'll circle back and cover your background. So your monopolies and oligopolies ETF particularly interested me. So firstly, is that the only fund of its kind? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, one of the core tenets of Tema is to make sure the themes that we launch are themes where there are no other competitors in the ETF market. We've actually built a tool to sort of scan the whole market to see where the white space is in terms of thematics. And absolutely, the Monopolies and Oligopolies ETF is the first of its kind in the United States focused on this particular theme. Should I tell you a little bit about it? Yeah, please do. I've, I, my next question was to give us the elevator pitch for the fund. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the sort of one-line pitch is kind of better quality globally. I think one of the interesting things is uh, we all know the quality factor is, is something that's kind of consistently seen across factor studies as contributing positively to returns. I know AQR recently produced a big paper that shows that over different cycles and over different countries, the quality factor works really well. But if you've also been reading the literature, like, for example, Mambusian, you know, he talks about how it's not enough to just buy stocks with high ROIC, which is what defines quality. You need something that gives you an edge to be able to outperform in these stocks. And one of those things is durability of that return. And that really can be found in monopolistic industries, industries where you have such concentration of market share because these businesses have provided so much critical value to their customers over time. And that means that the returns that they produce are very durable, and that creates the edge of the market. Because if you hold these stocks, you essentially get that edge, and you, you see our performance of these stocks over a long period of time. And that's basically what the Monopolies ETF is about. It's very similar to the strategies that the likes of Edgerton or Chris Hone pursue because they just don't say it explicitly, yeah. but this is the kinds of businesses that they invest in as well. Yeah, got it. And uh, as discussed, I think we can dig into sort of the granular detail of that strategy. But before we do that, circle back and cover some of your background to introduce you to our listeners. So having spent, I think, over a decade at Majedi. Majedi, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to slaughter that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my <laughs> last name and Majedi yeah. are difficult ones. <laughs> And you built the UK income fund, I read, from, from scratch, essentially, to managing several billion in AUM, and along the way, recording some of the best returns in the sector. So talk to us about, in a crowded space, what was your secret? Well, so obviously, it wasn't just me. We were a team of kind of four people. We, we co-managed the fund together. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's going to sound really basic, and it often does sound because things that sort of turn out well often have really basic key core ideas. Yeah. We did fundamental analysis, right? And we did it well. We worked hard and we really tried to understand the kind of the shop floor level of the companies. So whereas a lot of people sit and look at spreadsheets and sit at their desk, we spent a lot of time with the companies where they were trying to understand, you know, how these operations work. And what that does is it focuses the mind on companies that over-earned in the past. Because if you spend your time on the shop floor, you really understand what's going on in the business. And also it focuses the mind on a metric that I think is often ignored by the investment community, which is asset turn. How much is this company sweating the assets of its business? And what we found is that that is a really powerful predictor of future earnings for companies. If you combine that with another piece of work that we, we did and I think was quite unique in the market at the time is trying to understand how fundamentals link to valuation, even using correlation models of what they might be, to really understand, okay, if this business goes from being a 10% ROE business to a 15% ROE business, what happens to its valuation uh, using peers and history and all of those kinds of things? And that's where we, we gained our edge over the market. And you put that all together in a firm that had a pretty good culture and, and you get the results that you got. Yeah, fantastic. I think you're also currently sitting on the board of a private Scandinavian biotech company. And we don't necessarily need to get into the detail of that business, but I was interested if there was an intersection between your experience there and your current experience as CIO of Tima, is there an intersection? 
Well, so it's, it's obviously a legacy position I had before I started, and I, I want to see that sort of term as a board member through. Um, I love biotech. Uh, my mom's a molecular biologist. I've always been super interested in the sector. I even left Majedi to do a mid-career master's doing bioscience, um, not quite research. They wouldn't let me into a lab annoyingly, but you know, looking at bioscience businesses and how innovation gets commercialized. And I think it's going to be super helpful here at Tema because we're planning to launch an oncology ETF very soon. And there's actually a couple of other ETFs in the biotech space, one focused on obesity and another one focused on neurology that we've just filed for. Uh, we have an amazing fund manager to run these. His name is David Song. He's got you know, more letters than you care to, to write at the end of his name. Yeah. And he's been investing in the healthcare sector for about 20 years. And so David's going to be running all of those strategies. And it's quite helpful for me as CIO because biotech tends to be a very specialized sector. You really need to understand what you're talking about. And you know, my job as CIO is often to be the challenge to the fund managers. You know, if you thought about this, and it's very helpful to have that background to see how a business, you know, commercializes all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of focus on bringing the expertise in-house is very much core to your, your strategy. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what we try to do, uh, expert-led. I also learned that you set up along the way, I think, your own long-only fund. So talk to us about the strategy there, how you ran that. Right. So um, after leaving this master's, I tried my hand at starting my own fund, which, you know, I can say is a, a trying experience. It's, uh, it's been extremely helpful here at Tema because, you know, I've seen all sides of the business. So I've kind of understood, you know, how you set up an asset management business, how the different parts work together. It makes me a better investor, and a better CIO for the company. So what I did there was I went off, started my own long-only fund, built it from like a blank page to an actual fund. The strategy there was very similar to kind of the monopoly strategy, but perhaps a little bit earlier in the life cycle of okay. the company. So seeing businesses that are, have the potential to earn high returns and yeah. become monopolistic businesses, but investing them a bit early when they're transforming into that type of business by maybe changing their business model or doing something different. Ultimately, the fund was set up with a kind of strategic home, but as kind of these things happen, that didn't work out. And so it's quick to close it, give the money back to the, some of the investors that I had, and then was kind of you know, found my way into Tema. And, and I think that was the other thing, you know, I really wanted to be in an entrepreneurial environment because I love this sort of helping create something from scratch and looking at the world and being like, how are things done best? And how can we sort of take those learnings? And unless you've tried a little bit of entrepreneurship, you won't be able to have that humility to, to learn from what other people have done. Yeah, it does seem essential. Most of the people that we speak to come from companies or the ones that are performing well with an entrepreneurial sort of spirit or culture. It's something yeah. that actually at Opto, we, you know, we think we have and we tell people we have because that attracts the right sort of person. So it's kind of a bit of a flywheel, I guess. I think so, right? You get a expertise, so you've assembled enough experience, but you also have that drive and motivation to kind of build something. What I found is it just takes a certain type of person, right? To look at a blank page and, and imagine something. And I think... In our founder, Moritz, I, I see that the same things that I saw in myself. And it's just incredible the, the energy and drive he has to create this business. Fantastic. Well, perfect segue then to talk about Tima's philosophy and vision. The first line on Tima's about page, I'm going to have to read this word for word. It references a mission to build an active thematic ETF platform focused on ETF infrastructure and differentiated ETF strategies managed by experienced investment professionals. So it's going to dig into the, the first of those kind of descriptors, which was the ETF infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That felt notable to me. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, if you looked at how ETF issuance is done and has been done historically, it's an extremely manual process. It basically involves emails, calls, spreadsheets, sometimes pieces of paper being passed around. Yeah. And um, what we thought is that we saw this opportunity and something our founder basically experienced himself. And we thought, okay, can we build a digital kind of approach to this? And so what we're doing is we're, we're building an infrastructure set that's focused around kind of four core modules. Mm -hmm. It's about compliance, it's about risk management, it's about marketing. And these things come together in terms of, you know, an infrastructure that one can issue an ETF on. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's digital, but it also plugs into services because one of the things about the fund management and asset management industry is there's a lot of good stuff out there. It just doesn't really talk to each other. Yeah. And that's the challenge of making it all talk. And that's what we're trying to, to do. And then the other thing about the infrastructure business, it's, it's a really nice synergistic business with, with the product side, the, the themes and the thematic investing, because right. we run our, our themes on our own infrastructure. Uh, so the best analogy I can give you is kind of Microsoft, right? Microsoft basically built an enormous cloud business, but it did that by running its own services like Xbox and Office on that enormous infrastructure yeah. they were building. Right. And then they offered that infrastructure to other people. And so what happened was that their infrastructure just got better and better because they were always users of their own kind of 
what they've built. And I think that's our ambition for the ETF space as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. So fundamental to the way that the business is run, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, technology is really how businesses need to be built if you're going to look at a business from scratch like we were talking about earlier, yeah. right? If you don't use technology, you're going to be kind of left behind and it keeps evolving and we want to be there building this infrastructure to serve the clients on the on the infrastructure side, but also our own business internally. Yeah. And another kind of fundamental characteristic or core trait of the business, at least when I was reading your website again, was your products are designed to offer long-term exposure to secular growth trends. So firstly, can you just explain the reason for focusing on those sorts of trends? And perhaps you can give us an idea of how you distinguish between secular trends and those that are more cyclical in nature. Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, the thing is, you know, if you if you observe the thematic world, I think maybe the word trend isn't what what we try to focus on is is kind of mega themes, right? That have like long-term structural durability. And what they have is a quality underlying the reason, the drivers of this long-term theme. What you sort of tend to see a little bit in the marketplace is kind of people focusing on trends, you know, like work from home or uh, Donald Trump or meme stocks or whatever, if you will. Exactly. And I think they get confounded often with fads, but there's excitement, there's conversation. And I think that goes back to uh, one of the things that you know, we want to touch on is kind of the chapter one of thematic investing was all about telling the story. And no one really cared what the substance of that story is. And I think where we're trying to come in is be like, well, what is the actual substance of this investment product? Can we do it better than other people have done? And sort of move away from just a story, but more to substance and process and to inject kind of institutional great ideas into that. And I suppose the, the time horizon for all your funds is there for longer term. Can you give us a sense of kind of what long term means to you? Well, I mean, all the themes are built around kind of multi-decade kind of trends. Uh, the trends will evolve over time. And I think that's one of the differentiating factors. You want to have an active manager who's almost a thought leader in their space because the dynamic of the trend might change. If you take American Reshoring, one of our, our themes, which I'm sure we'll discuss as well, it's very, very interesting, right, how that's permeating the U.S. economy and that might change over time. And, and so that, that's kind of one of the, the ways we were trying to, to do this. Yeah. And an active approach overseen by those experienced or professionals that we were talking about earlier is, again, essential to your strategy, it seems. Why then do you think so many firms, kind of on the flip side or conversely, are managing their funds passively or as index trackers? Look, I... I think it's just the easy approach, right? As I said, chapter one of the thematic ETFs was all about what's the easiest way I can do this, right? It's simple. I I just pick a theme, pick a couple of stock quite mechanically, offer it with a low cost and go out in the market. And it was all about quantity of exposure rather than quality of exposure. And I think what you find with, with passive is it doesn't work in thematics, right? Because one... Themes are naturally forward-looking rather than backward-looking. But when they construct these passive indices, it's extremely backward-looking. The the winners of tomorrow are not the winners of today. And I think that's really important to say. The other important thing is passive is all about, you know, a lot of these themes are risk-on in a way. And you have a huge dispersion of returns between these companies. And passive just doesn't manage to kind of play that that dispersion returns Mm -hmm. piano, which is what active management does much better. And then, as I mentioned, they you know they just get sucked into these like awful fads and trends. And then it, ultimately, what happens is the investor has a bad outcome. If you look at the crop of passive thematic ETFs out there, you'd be amazed how many of them are actually underwater since they've launched. And I think that's telling two things: one, the timing. So they they tend to launch at the sort of peak kind of fervorance of, of about yeah. that particular theme yeah. and two just this quality issue which they don't really care about what goes into the things as long as it expresses the theme yeah and that's where we're trying to differentiate ourselves yeah i think you're completely right we've spoken to a, a few firms where it does seem it's more an exhaustive list of companies exposed to that theme rather than picking the best or key players within exactly there's no creativity that goes into deciding what that theme is and again it's, it's about precision of exposure right you yes. want an individual constantly looking and understanding how is this theme working how is it changing and what is the most optimal exposure of stocks i can give you that that exposes to that what tends to happen is everyone just says these are 50 stocks that are ai stocks and what gets even worse is they'll say these are 50 stocks ai and they also tend to also be the 50 robotic stocks and they also tend to be and so you have this kind of correlation between all of the different themes yeah and so investors who think they're investing in what is a differentiated thematic exposure are actually getting correlated exposure which is what we've seen in the last couple of years yeah and um 
I guess then a, a particularly volatile market environment necessitates a more active, more nimble approach, which obviously these passive strategies don't allow for. Is that another benefit of, of team of us? Yeah, I mean, that, that's what we think. I mean, if you look at what's happened after the, the COVID kind of crash in the market is, and BlackRock have a fantastic chart showing this, is just the dispersion of returns in the marketplace has increased. And it's particularly so within the thematic space. Yeah. And this is where active management should, in theory, shine. So if we have the right experts and we think we do. We've we've hired fund managers with, you know, 20, 30 years experience in the market, having seen lots of different cycles. And also a lot of them coming as from generalist backgrounds on the buy side. And so they always have a natural skepticism towards semantics, which really helps because they they understand the story and they can buy into it. Yeah. But they're also very, you know, cynical of like how these things play out and are able to nimbly adjust the portfolio for those things. Yeah, that's super important that they're coming into it with potentially not necessarily perfectly agreeing with kind of the thematic investment approach. Exactly. It's, it's, it's one of those terms as well, similar to, I suppose, how AI is being used at the moment. It's a bit of a buzzword. Funds, active managers, or any sort of asset manager tends to trot out that term to yeah. sell the fund, right? Exactly. It's kind of going back to this whole story thing, right? They, they just want to sell this simple story. And actually, I think that's fine because as a, as a marketing tool, that's great. You're, you're telling an interesting story. It really gets people to buy into it. You know, if you think about the oncology ETF we're planning to launch, you know, there's a real emotive connection to this. You know, I'm, I'm helping the fight against cancer. It might have affected some of my relatives or people I know. And, you know, the, the staggering stat is it will affect one in two of us at some point in our lifetime. But the thing is, it's it's kind of like, yes, that that's important. But what you want is really good substance behind it, right? And uh, you've just seen this proliferation in the capital markets, right? Like uh, zero-cost trading, all of those things. And, and the problem is, is that there's just not quality investment products. So was, you know, there's been a democratization of access to yes. capital yeah. markets. We just haven't had the democratization of access to quality public equity markets. And that's what we're trying to solve. Yeah. And to an extent, then, are you providing sort of access to more institutional grade strategies that's to right. a retail market? Yeah, that's exactly what we're passionate about, right? Because you just see it like with the meme stocks and people just get carried away and they have a terrible investment outcome. And you know, the last thing I want for this new generation of people entering the stock market, uh, thanks to companies like Robin Hood, is to have a really bad investment experience. And I think we think the next generation belongs to kind of democratizing access to these really good strategies that people can kind of say, you know, I've owned this for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, um, let's use this juncture then to get into the sort of granular detail of your investment process and your yeah. portfolio construction as well. So, uh, before your security selection kicks in, I imagine there's some sort of process that happens whereby you define your pool of themes. So talk to us about how that how that process takes place. Yeah, so look, our themes are all about four things, right? They're about basically being differentiated from, from what's out there in the market. It's about underpenetration, which I kind of described the yeah. sort of white space out there in the ETF world. So we don't really want to have competitors for, for our themes. They're about being compelling you know, long-term structural, which is what we discussed, discussed before. And they, they're about being expert-led, right? Like, yeah. we have to believe that an expert can add value to this particular theme. Yeah. And that's really the four criteria we use to determine a theme. Now, there's a whole process that goes behind it and an understanding of this. You know, the, the themes also have to have a certain size. What you sometimes see in the thematic world is niche themes that are way too small that people struggle to actually find the stocks for. That's not something we want to be. I mean, all of the themes that we launch, plan to launch, I've looked at are sort of 500 billion to a trillion market cap right, okay. type themes, right? And that's that's very, very important as well. And you kind of put it all through this ringer and what comes out are usually, very interestingly, quality type exposure. So this point I made about that a lot of the tailwinds for these themes are related around the quality of the businesses. Yeah. And that's another differentiating factor. Yeah. And I'll dig into that in a second. But before we do, I saw your themes were categorized in, in two separate groups. So you had thematic growth and defensive quality. So does that categorization happen after you've picked the themes or are you kind of mindful of those two categories when you go into it? Yeah, it's interesting to say that. I, I think, you know, the website, that was really designed to kind of guide the, the user journey when they arrive to the website because I think people like to think about things in different buckets. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think the real differentiator is probably the thematic quality because that's, that's something you probably never see on any other thematic issuer's website. And this is, again, it harks back to the sort of point I was making, which is it's about the quality of exposure to this theme. You know, if you take luxury goods, which is another one of our ETFs, the first in the US and, and, and kind of the only one, it's about exposure to these companies that are quality businesses, that have pricing power, that have durability of their brands over a long period of time. That's what we're trying to do. And that's what fits under that, um, that umbrella. Yeah. Okay. And 
on that same website, I saw the uh, process split into four phases, I suppose. The first one was top-down idea generation. And underneath that, you noted a, a quant screening that happens. So perhaps you can give some detail on the criteria or the yeah, metrics. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've, you've probably seen this in many presentations of kind of fund managers. It's The challenge is to understand the world of stocks, right, and to narrow it down. If you think about it, the first step of narrowing down, you take the universe of stocks and you're narrowing it down to the thematic universe that we create. Yeah. And I think this is where we start to differentiate immediately from the passive world. We're not just exposing and then market weighting these, these stocks. What we're doing is we're saying, is this the perfect thematic exposure for this theme right now? And how is that going to change maybe in the future or not? And we define this, what we call a proprietary thematic universe. And that does involve some quantitative tools, some machine learning tools, some, and frankly, good old-fashioned fundamental analysis yeah. to get that universe. We have obviously criteria determined in our prospectuses about what these stocks are, yeah. but ultimately there's there's some leeway for for the fund managers to be creative in, in their exposure. But the portfolio at the end has to look like it's being exposed to this theme. And then the second step is, okay, once I've got this universe, what do I do from an investment perspective to sort of weed out you know, the loss-making terrible businesses yeah. in there? And every fund manager will have a different view on these quant screens that you referred to. Uh, some of our fund managers like exclusively only invest in companies that have good sort of insider ownership yeah. uh, and and the management teams are incentivized in these businesses. Others look for quality features like return on equity or, or asset turn, which is what I think about often, or balance sheets as well, right? We don't invest in anything over like three or four times that that's EBITDA because that can impair equity. Yeah. And so, but it gives enough freedom for the fund managers to decide what the next step is. And then we get into the security selection process after that. Yeah, interesting. Just to go back a step then, are you kind of mindful of or do you have a concept of the entire thematic universe or the way that you define it? Because obviously you've got funds in certain areas, but are you mindful of, of a, a broader landscape? Well, I, I guess the whole world of global stocks is kind of the, the landscape. And yeah. what's beautiful about thematics, it sort of passes sector and market and sort of style guides yeah. and all of those things. It's sort of it's its own kind of category. And yeah, I, I would say, you know, We've become experts in understanding, you know, what the thematic universes are out there. But the problem is that, you know, it's just not been done that well in the past. No. It's really what we're trying to break from. It's crowded. It's focused on things that have high dispersion. It's just not the most optimal way to do thematic investing. Yeah. If you pick themes that have quality underlying them, you, you actually get a much better outcome uh, as an investor. So uh, we, we sort of fly on our own in this world because we're looking for things that don't exist. But to get to the white space, you have to know where the borders are, yeah. where everybody else right. is. And of course, we're always looking at, um, you know, we track everything that's going on in our world of thematic investing. And of course, it's flourishing and that will help us as well. But often people crowd into the same things and then that, that's just not where we want to be. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Absolutely. You mentioned sectors there. We thought about this being a thematic content provider. To what extent, you know, the, the traditional sort of MSCI sector classification sort of matrix, like how do you align your thematic view of the world with that more traditional view? Yeah, it's interesting, right? So the world gets cut up in sectors, countries, and then styles as well. Um, but I think that's just one way to cut things. Yeah. Um, I think for us, it's trying to be like creative around the theme. And sometimes the, the set of theme overlaps with the set of sector. Uh, so for example, you know, luxury goods is a really good but there is actually no luxury goods MSCI right. classification. But you would be like, well, well that's, that's quite surprising to me. Like, why is there not one that exists? And that's where we want to live in terms of the theme. Uh, but it's because luxury is, is a, it's a subjective term, right? It's kind of, what is a luxury company? And I think this is where we start to differentiate ourselves versus providers like MSCI, which will look at it very mechanistically and then help empower the passive industry to build around that. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's get back to your process then, because you mentioned the next step would be your bottom-up security selection. Yeah. So uh, talk to us about, you know, if there's any consistent fundamentals you look for in the businesses. We've touched on that a little bit, but give, yeah. us, give us a bit more detail there. Yeah, so, so I mentioned the, the screens, but once we've kind of set the, what I would call the research set, right? This is one of the companies I'm going to do some work on. We employ four pillars, which are really, really important. And that's something I learned at Majeti. And it's about really understanding the businesses that you're about to invest in. And they split into kind of two categories, mm -hmm. right? Two and two. So the first two are really about kind of downside protection, in my yeah. view, right? Thematics often is about return, right? And risk on in, in a way. And so where everyone gets lost is they just get so focused on that, they forget about the downside risk, which is what equity investing often involves. And the two tests we employ are, one is 
operating base, right? Is this business have a solid operating base? Yeah. This can be anything from management, the track record, good positioning of factories, whatever it might be. It's a analytical fundamental analysis, but at the end of it, I want my fund manager to stand up and tell me, I think this business has a solid operating base. Mm. The second part is about the balance sheet and cash flow statement. Look, in, in equity investing, you, you basically, you make big mistakes if you invest in companies with bad balance sheets or bad cash flow generation. Over and over again, it's always the same story from Silicon Valley Bank to all those things. It's, it's age old. Yeah. And the, the reason balance sheets are so painful for equity investors is because it's about permanent impairment of capital. If you have a balance sheet problem, you will never get that equity value back. You might have a profit warning in a company and usually it sometimes comes back, right? But if you have a balance sheet focused impairment, yeah. that's it. Your equity's value is, is impaired. And so that's why we focus on those two things as kind of downside rates. I want good businesses that have solid operating basis that have balance sheet and cash flow generation. That means we've got the solid foundation. That's my downside risk I've taken care of. Now I can start thinking, okay, what can I make money in this stock? And that's where the other two tests come in. The first is valuation. Again, what we... Valuation is done very differently by different fund managers. They have different views. They might look at it versus fundamentals of the business, the future growth profile relative to peers or history. And that's kind of the beauty of this process. I leave it up to them, but I just want them to create a valuation case for this business. Right. Why do they think it's cheap relative to whatever metrics they use? Yeah. And then the second bit, the, the final test is kind of a really tough one. And I, I know you, you know, on some of your shows, you ask this is, What's our edge, right? Yeah, like, yeah. The market's pretty smart. There's loads of smart people out there. And so I force our fund manager, the we force in the process, to ask that difficult question right at the end of the process. What's your edge in the stock? And, you know, edge has been classically defined by either behavioral, informational, or analytical. And I think we live very in the behavioral analytical world. Yeah, okay. I think informational and public equities is always difficult. Yeah, in yeah, some yeah. areas, you might have that in, for example, biotech. But really, it's about doing good fundamental analysis and just using common sense and having this behavioral ability, which often in thematics you don't get, right? Um, so these are the kind of four pillars that we use to analyze stocks. Interesting. And maybe to make it a little less abstract, is there like a quintessential company that meets those criteria that you can give us an example of? Very interesting. I mean, if you think about all of the companies within the Monopoly ETF, I mean, they essentially are like the quintessential picture of this, right? If you take a company like Moody's, right? A credit yeah. rating agency. It's a monopoly in credit rating. Yeah. It's, it's an incredible business in many ways. It's operating base. I mean, they have the world's biggest data, proprietary database. And it's proprietary because of private and public companies yeah. with the most number of data points. And they pair that with credit decisions, right? And so you have this like incredible thing where they see all the credit decisions that get made and they have all the information on the companies. And then they combine that together to provide tools for other people to make better credit decisions. That's unbeatable, right? And so in terms of operating base, that's really solid, right? And they've also got international businesses, good, thoughtful kind of capital allocation policies and things like that. And that's the operating base, right? Pristine balance sheet and cash flow generation. You know, the cash conversion is 80, 90% of this business, right? Yeah. Over time. And then... You know, this valuation case, right? This business is currently, everyone's worried about issuance, right? So there's there's this sort of cyclical kind of bearishness that's in the market because people are, oh, interest rates have gone up. No one's ever going to issue any debt. And they forget that we issued loads of debt that needs to be refinanced. So we have this huge refinancing wall coming. And so you have a blip and issuance has been down, you know, 30, 40%. And this is the historically the best time to buy Moody's because people get pessimistic. And then we've seen the stock market happen is people get pessimistic and then they they pile it like a structural case. Oh, interest rates are going to have to be high forever. So therefore, these businesses are, are dead and the stocks then derate and that's when you, you have an interesting opportunity. And what's our edge? I mean, really, it's kind of understanding this point, right? That the cyclical gets confounded with structural. It's a behavioral thing that you see in the market. So there's like a bit of a behavioral edge. And then this analytical point, which is, you know, even in the world of AI, recreating a data center. And the reason why it's so unique is Private company data, it comes from the government, but it gets dumped every five years. So yeah. that data just gets deleted, whereas Moody's keeps that data. And so now we have, you know, if you need to do KYC, if you need to understand the credit risk you're taking, there's only one shop in town, essentially. Yeah. And that understanding over long periods of time you know, that goes with the market share is why, why I think it's, a, it's an interesting stock. So it kind of fits all of those, those buckets there. And... It strikes me, particularly with that example, then the long term sort of investment cases is clear in your conviction from that company or about that company is unlikely to waver, I suppose. Yeah. How then 
you know, do you think about entry points? Do you think about valuation? Are you trading in and out of the stock along the way, even though your conviction remains intact long term? How, how does that tend to play out? Yeah, look, with thematic investing, you have to be long term. You have to imagine this. And with monopolistic businesses, especially, you have to be kind of, you know, this business has gained this advantage by offering this incredible customer yeah. value, and it's likely to keep accruing this advantage over time. But valuations is usually the thing in the monopolistic space that right. you, you, people get a bit too excited about certain things. And then that's when you have to set that off uh, into, against the risk. So what I do is, is a simple risk-reward analysis. You know, Can I make an upside case for this company? What's the downside case? And once that risk-reward is no longer positive, I don't really see it as a kind of long-term holder. And really always it comes down to valuations, right? Okay. Naturally, these businesses trade on higher multiples, yeah. a little bit higher than the market yeah. in general, uh, because I'm trying to be a bit more valuation cognizant. The problem with a, a theme like this is if you were probably a thematic fund, you just buy high ROIC businesses like you know Qual does and it, yeah. or Moat, for example. The problem is, is that that's just not the right way to think about this. Nice. These things change over time. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a financial right. So like sometimes you might want to to, to change these things. And I think we have this core of businesses and then you sort of make decisions based on that over the long term. Got it. Um, and perhaps I can reference a particular example. You mentioned the American reshoring ETF earlier. Yeah. And I think that's market cap weighted. I was looking at the portfolio and it that seemed to be the way. Is that not right? No, none of our funds are market cap. So this is the other, I guess, bit of differentiation, right? So hopefully I've described to you the security selection process, right? And I, I think it's quite unique and it, it fits a lot of different fund managers. And really what it's about is stock selection. Right? Because the real alpha out there, and, and there's been loads of studies done on this, the real alpha in the stock market is picking stocks, selecting securities. Where fund managers start to fall down a little bit and is, is actually constructing the portfolios yeah. to take advantage of the stock yeah. selection. If you look at a long enough period for the best performing managers, the alpha that they generate from portfolio construction is actually slightly negative. Mm -hmm. And the alpha they generate from stock section is obviously very positive. And the two offset each other to create alpha for the, the best managers. Got it. And so what we did is we spent, frankly, six months and we did what, what I call a pretty wide-ranging study of trying to understand, okay, how do you do portfolio construction in equities? We've got this amazing opportunity to build it from scratch. And we talked to lots of fund managers. We read lots of academic papers. We talked to a few consultants. Frankly, everything you can imagine, read the literature as well. And essentially, we came up with this process of, of kind of three tiers of position sizing. And you want tiers, and you want to have a minimum position size and a maximum position size. And it's really just about risk management. But it's also about behavioral biases. They tend to creep in into active management. Mm -hmm. People like to buy little tiny positions because they want to have it on their portfolio. And usually by the time they build the conviction in this position, the you know, the alpha's gone in this yeah. idea. Um, lots of work has been done to show that alpha tends to, you know, despite maybe what Bailey Gifford and others say, in ideas tends to have a life like 18 to 24 months, right? And obviously we're going to be a bit different than, than that um, because of the long-term outlook, but I'm just saying that kind of in the typical fold. And what people do is they don't scale the positions high enough right at the start. So the investor doesn't benefit. Or they trade around stocks. Like, oh, I'll just trim 0.2%. It's really just a behavioral reaction. Like you did mm. something. But the problem is that's got no impact to the end result for the investor. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do is kind of build these what are called guidelines. And they are just guidelines, okay. right? Because yeah. you can't be too systematic about it. No. We call it systematic. The problem is once you become too systematic, you just let the machines run the show. And you know some of them are good at it, but I can't say that that's one of our core skills. Mm. And so we built these guidelines to, to make sure there's this kind of risk-managed exposure to these themes. Yeah. Um, you know, that I won't name one of our competitors, but I think there's, there's people in the market, especially in the active ETF space, that just don't do that. They don't right? think just, about that, right? They don't think about that. And they, there's, there's no risk management in how they size positions or how they make trades. And it's just, and frankly, I, I think it's quite a dangerous mm. kind of product to, to look at and invest in if you don't really thought about that. Mm. So that's how portfolio construction, but it's absolutely not market cap weighted. That's how the passive world does it. Great. All right. And um, we've talked about risk management there. Are you monitoring kind of, are there like baselines, minimum or maximum levels of exposure that you want to have to, I don't know, a particular region within a fund, for example? Are you thinking about it in that way? Yeah. So basically, uh, ultimately, right, you've got your theme, then you've got your the portfolio that gets constructed, right? And yeah. it's the fund manager's discretion to construct the portfolio. Mm. Then I, I'm the CIO. I go in and we have lots of conversations every week, almost a formal meeting where mm. it's called the CIO oversight meeting, where we discuss exposure to sectors, to factors, to um, countries, to currencies every type of thing that you can imagine. And the idea is 
is to just for me to just be like, are you sure you want to have this exposure or that exposure? And really, it's just about challenge. And ultimately, it's their call to make these decisions. But it's a risk management framework where I'm telling them that, you know, I'm worried about this. What do you think about this? And then it's incumbent on them to make that case. Mm -hmm. Um, I think risk management is kind of an interesting term. I always like to think of it as kind of parachutes, right? Like Mm -hmm. you need multiple layers of of risk management checks. Like you need multiple parachutes, right? If you jump out of a plane, you have one parachute. The probability that you'll hit the ground without the parachute opening and it failing is 0.01, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have two parachutes, the probability is multiplicative, right? So mm-hmm. you, you you multiply the two numbers. So it's actually vanishingly small after that point that two parachutes would fail. And risk management is exactly the same sort of thing. First, we have the fund manager's own risk management you know, brain working yeah. all the time yeah, yeah, because I'm always talking to them about it. Things like that balance sheet test. Then you have the CIO oversight and then you have all of the operational oversights that you could imagine in a in a normal professional new asset management firm to check all of these things. And that's how I think about the risk management um, process at Tema. Great. Let's dig into the funds then. Uh, we've, we've kind of referenced a few along the way, but I want to get more detail on, on a couple of them. If we start with the luxury fund, the Lux ETF, one of the five reasons stated on your website to invest in the fund is timeless aspirational moats. So I thought you could firstly just explain that and give us a bit more detail about what that means. Yeah, so uh, look, luxury goods are incredibly unique types of businesses. And I mean, it's just you just kind of, as soon as you hear the word, you're trying to imagine what, what it is. And I think it's got so many features that are really unique to the luxury space. Like the imagine a, 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 the set of people that want to own a luxury good and the set of people that do own a luxury handbag or a luxury car. Are, the set of people is enormous. Yeah. And the set of people that actually do it is very small. And that is a deliberate strategy by luxury goods companies. They're going as far as, you know, forcing people to queue for, for handbags by invitation only. You know, right now, if, if I wanted to go buy a Birkin bag from Hermes, I, I, I couldn't. If I wanted to go buy a Ferrari, I, I'd have to have owned the previous five models. And this is a deliberate kind of controlling of supply by luxury goods. Yeah. And this is what we mean by aspirational moats, right? This, this, the desire, to, the aspiration to get these products is so high because the set of people is so much bigger than the set of people that have it. And it's also about heritage, right? These businesses are about, you know, they're so old, right? Like Hermes started making saddles for like royalty in, in Europe and in Russia and in France, and then proceeded from that to be a leather goods maker and expanded into lots of different things. And they're just such a unique business in this, the, in this world because they restrict supply. They're super focused on the heritage of their brand. Everything is about making sure that that brand has longevity. And that's why they really stand out in the marketplace. And you can compare that to other really good brands like Nike and you just realize it's just chalk and cheese, right? And it, is, it expresses itself in the financials of these businesses, the much higher gross margins, much higher returns on invested capital. But you can see it already as a fundamental business. Uh, and one of the funny things, again, going back to the passive point is if you looked up the S&P Global Luxury Index, which exists, yeah. not as a sector allocation, but a thing, Nike is one of the biggest positions in the fund. And, and that's the thing that, that sort of tells you that someone just dumped that in their market cap, weighted it, and didn't think about that yeah. as a business. Got it. One of the reasons to invest in the RSHO, the reshoring ETF, was called pure exposure. It's something that we think about a lot, this kind of pure play exposure to a particular theme. So maybe this is more of a general point. How do you ensure purity of exposure in each of your funds? Yeah, I mean, look, it starts with a person dedicating 24 hours of their life thinking about that theme. Mm. A dedicated fund manager means that, right? It's not a passive approach where you have a committee that maybe meets once a year and and that's it. And it's it's market cap weighted, so they don't really care about the the companies that go in there. And, you know, my dream is that each one of our fund managers, and they're on their way to doing that, are thought leaders in their space, right? They really understand what's going on on the ground in reshoring. You know, they're talking to Harvard professors that have been studying supply chains. They're talking to the reshoring initiative, some government sort of focused organization. They're speaking to the companies all of the time. And they see on the ground, you know, the United States is a very big place. There are different states that are winning the reshoring battle much more than others. And, and understanding where the lay of the land is for reshoring is really, really important to understand getting the pure exposure. Yeah. The, the problem is a lot of people will play reshoring through, I don't know, an infrastructure play, mm-hmm. right? And, and to me, infrastructure is like, yes, it's, it's a part of it. It's, but it's so much more than that, right? Yeah. We, sure, you need to build a road and a bridge to the factories that are going to be built. But the factories themselves, the access systems, the services that go around, the logistics, 
that's the next stage. The, the automation mm. robotics that go into it. And then after that, you know, these businesses are going to thrive because they're building closer to their customers and mm-hmm. the impact that that has. And this sort of nuanced approach to understanding is why reshoring is pure exposure to that theme. And so what you might see out there from maybe other issuers is they'll try to kind of, they already have an ETF, like an infrastructure, and they'll just sort of ram reshoring because that's the thing people are talking about. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is say, well, one, we think reshoring is a fundamentally long-term mega trend yeah. because for the first time in U.S. history, it's actually happening. And companies, private companies, of course, a little bit helped by subsidies, are making these decisions to move their production back home. It's going to be durable. It's going to be long-term. But how do you actually express it perfectly? Sure, infrastructure will benefit. But what's chapter two, three, four, five after that? Yeah, it's, inter- it's a really interesting trend. I mean, it strikes me that someone, you know, and is, is an expert in that theme needs to be aware of kind of macro, socioeconomic, kind of everything, everything yeah. essentially, right? Yeah, it's, it's like permeating into the US economy. Yeah. Like take pharmaceuticals, right? You wouldn't automatically think, because when you think reshoring, people think big uh, TSMC fab being built in Arizona. Yeah. That's like the number one thing that comes to people's mind. But actually, you don't think about the fact that the U.S. imports 90% of active pharmaceutical ingredients from other countries. That is a critical supply chain issue that they need to solve. So it's healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. It's also, I don't know, things like childcare services for the factories that are being built. I mean, you can go food services for those those factories. It's kind of understanding the holistic picture. And that's Mm -hmm. where where I think that's why it's such a powerful theme. And I'm I'm super excited, but really because we're getting this conference where there's a lot of buy-in from everyone into this. Yeah, definitely. And um, another point you mentioned there, you were talking about kind of the domain expertise that all of your investment professionals need to have, and you want them to go on to become thought leaders in each individual space. So I'm seeing parallels between how ARK Invest operate with their analysts and how each of their analysts, you know, is is from that industry. That's where they start. They're not necessarily investment professionals. And then they're kind of co-opted into the ARK Invest structure and then use their insights to to determine investment strategy. So I'm sure there are a lot of differences, but I wonder whether you could reflect on kind of that shift, I mean, maybe just within the industry as a whole, bringing mm. uh, academics almost into the investment space. It's a very interesting question that. Um, so we, we've we tried to sort of, a, I guess, a balanced model on this, mm-hmm. but I'm going to be slightly biased here and say that I, I think generalists like fund managers and, and people who have been working in the investment world, even on the sell side, mm-hmm. they just, they sort of get how you go from a driver yeah. to a stock return. Yeah. And that's ultimately what you want in a thematic yeah, fund, right? Yeah. And the problem I think with ARC a little bit as well is they maybe they'll get the driver because they'll understand, you know, semiconductors to the nth degree. But I think that translation into that's a business, that business might have other things going on within it, management, boards, balance sheets. Mm-hmm. And then there's a stock return, which is people, behavior, markets, you know, all interacting. And that chain... That's, you can, you know, in my view, you really need someone who's been in the investment world, who's frankly like, I don't felt things go wrong, right? Like when you, you think this is going to work out this way, but it doesn't. And have that experience over 20, 30 years through different cycles, through different interest rate environments, through whatever, yeah. to, to know what to do in those situations. Those make much better investors. And mm-hmm. then maybe they'll lack the, the real deep, deep, deep expertise in I know, semiconductors, for, yeah. for example, in ARC. But in my experience, I'm always amazed at how investment professionals are just able because they, they just have this hunger for learning that they can just pick up a topic. I mean, I, I'm often amazed. You just overnight, you're like suddenly an expert on whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah. you need to be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, access systems to factories, right? Like yeah. I didn't know anything about locks. And then next day, I'm pretty able to converse with an expert on these things. And I think it's because they're, investment professionals are able to find, okay, what are the three, four most important things? going to focus my time on that and that sort of thing which is they sort of see the wood from the trees if you will yeah and i think specialists especially specialists with no real investment experience they 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 don't do that they see everything to them as just one you know it's like the old hedgehog and fox analogy you've probably heard of many times the famous Isaiah berlin uh, essay and greek poem but it's really like we look for foxes and not really hedgehogs who have like one big theory and, and i think the, the slight problem a little bit with arc and i don't want to say anything bad about competitors is is that is that yeah got it no I, I, it's a really important distinction i think because academics i guess pursue a holistic knowledge of everything within that space where yeah. investment professionals are looking at it through a different prism I it, guess. exactly a different prism and things might change and what investment professionals are really good at is change because it's it's constant markets are changing economies are changing the world is changing whereas you know they pr- 
support you know academics to to be open to change, but they're not really open to change, are they? No. Okay, I signaled an interest in the monopolies and oligopolies ETF, which we've discussed a couple of times along the way. But I read again on your website that monopolies often occur in industries where products offer critical value to their consumers and where there's little other alternative. Yeah. I suppose perhaps you can use a constituent in the fund at the moment to give us an example of this actually working in practice. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's quite interesting, right? Because the reason we focus so much on this mission critical point mm. is because people, when they hear the word monopoly, they often think something bad, right? They yeah. think you know, price gouging, yeah. customers getting hurt, yeah. etc. And, and I think one of the important things to say is that we're absolutely not that fun, right? We, we actively avoid companies that have done this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The point is, is that these businesses provided this incredible value called mission critical value to their customers that they can just cannot operate without these these things and this value accrues over time and gives them the competitive advantage and they sort of chip away and the white you know the, the space like in a bike race you know it just opens up over time and so now the market shares you see now are a result of all of that value that was created over the past and then a great example of that is, is visa right like take visa as a business you know it's a very you know, a reasonably well-understood company, although not in that much in favor these days, once why it's kind of in the fund. But Visa, it just offers incredible value to the customers that use it, to the network, to the issuing banks. And it sort of sits in the middle. It takes a very small percentage of the take rate because a lot of that goes to the issuing banks and to then eventually they pass that on to customers in terms of rewards and all of those things. And it offers this incredible network. And the network, we take it for granted today that you could just walk into a shop and pay with a Visa card. Yeah. Visa is accepted in like something like 115 or 120 different countries. I forget the exact number. There are only 140 countries. I mean, it's it's ubiquitous. And the ubiquity is what creates value for the network. And over time, that's what it's done. It's kind of accrued this beautiful network for people to yeah. use to be able to make payments whenever they want. And it's really telling that all of the fintechs that have tried to set up, that are sort of say they're trying to disrupt payments, actually end up taking Visa's rails. You know, whether it's Google's Pay, Apple Pay, whatever it is, they use the rails of the network because they're like, well, recreating that is just pointless, essentially. And that's why Visa has you know, very strong financials because it just accrues its value over time for, for customers and for itself. Yeah, our editor, Imata, were discussing this exact fund on the way here. And obviously, I'd looked into it and Marta asked for an example of uh, a company that exhibited these sorts of characteristics. And Visa was the example that I pointed to because it does seem the sort of quintessential example. It's, it's a little bit of quintessential example. But if you look across like ratings agencies, uh, index, index providers, we talked about MSCI and S&P Global basically control that market because what they had, they provided this value over time, right? They were the best at building indices. And now this value just, it, it has a life of its own, right? Like if you're a fund manager, on every fund manager's CV, the words S&P Global or MSCI is just written. They're handing out their CVs. And do you think that they're happy to put, I don't know, Bloomberg B500 index? No. No, right? Because it's not, it just doesn't have that same value that's been created over time. And and it's just everything. And innovation is another one, right? Like uh, often in the world, you innovate, you create patents and you create market position. And from that, you create a monopolistic position in whatever thing you're providing. So, but yeah, but Visa is the quintessential one because it's just, it's so people can relate to it as well. And Visa and MasterCard have, you know, 80% market share of the world's payments. Yeah. So network effects, I guess, is is a tailwind for them, a, a driver of, of value. Yeah, exactly. So we we, we kind of define in, in the monopoly fund kind of sources of these, these durable barriers to entry, and one of them uh, is network effects. But I think it's really important to also mention, you know, risks, right? Like, um, I think when, whenever you're talking about stocks and I always want to make sure people are aware, you know, like each individual f- investment, it's, you know, what we're sort of, I'm trying to say is there's a portfolio here of different names, right? And and it's very important to mention some risks. You know, with Visa, for example, the world is possibly bifurcating, which is one of the drivers of the reshoring trend. And some countries have expressed a point like, oh, we're going to set up our own payment system. And, yeah. you know, I think what's happened in Russia, et cetera, is a, is a really good point. Yeah. And so that is a risk for Visa card usage there. But the problem is that, again, you go back to this network. It's just so easy to walk into a shop everywhere in the world. And you see the Visa logo there. And that was, by the way, one of their brilliant innovations to put that there. Yeah. So it's just so people know that you can comfortably pay. And so I kind of question, like, unless the world really splits in half and, and God forbid, an iron curtain falls again, I don't think it's going to be really that easy to dislodge some of these systems. And that's the kind of businesses that we invest in. Yeah, absolutely. And another of those characteristics that um, characterizes these businesses, uh, again, described on your website, is pricing power. 
well, actually, I remember reading on your website, I think you described that there's kind of two ways this pricing power can exhibit. So there was implicit and explicit. Yeah. Perhaps you can give me a better sense of what Yeah, of course. So look, explicit pricing power is a toll road, right? I mean, the reason the ticker for monopolies is toll, it's this idea that that you're just getting a toll by providing this bit of infrastructure, whatever it might be. Visa, again, also takes a small cut of every payment. Um, and it's explicit in toll road operators, which are also in, in the portfolio, because it's written literally in the regulation, in the concession document that was signed. Every year, you can raise prices by RPI or whatever consumer index you use for inflation, yeah. plus a little bit. That's explicit, right? And that goes across infrastructure assets like airports and all those kinds of things. Implicit is competitive market, but because of this mission critical value these businesses provide, they're able to get some of that value for themselves by raising pricing. And the, I think the biggest distinction on pricing is it's about the durability of price rises. If you look at some businesses, they say they can raise prices, and they usually do in periods where their costs are rising, so they're just passing the costs on. But as soon as those costs fall away, the price is going to drift back down, whereas the businesses within the monopolistic industries, because of their market position, that never really happens. So it just, and it compounds over time. And, and luxury, by the way, is a great example of pricing power yeah, as well. right. You know, they just... There, it's even more bizarre. I mean, the more expensive something is, the more there's a desire to buy more of it. It's, it's kind of a uh, because people perceive more value from it as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, where we like to finish all of these interviews is by asking our guest their next big idea. It's the name of the show, and we want to get a better sense of whether there's a stock, a theme, even an investment strategy that you can point to that's potentially underreported by mainstream media that you don't hear a lot out there. Maybe it's the uh, the theme on, on which one of these uh, new funds is going to be offering exposure to. So give us a sense of what your next big idea is. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I mean, I thought about this, this carefully, right? And uh, I think the thing I want to say is kind of what we're trying to do at Tema, right? This taking active management to thematics. Yeah. I genuinely think it's the next big idea. Mm. As I said, chapter one of the thematic evolution really belonged to these passive ones funds, but it was really about quantity of right. exposure. I just really firmly believe the next generation is going to make really good investment products. This is the mission that I've bought into, and I really, really believe that what I want to deliver to the market is these actively managed thematic funds that really haven't existed before, that are just good investment products. And I think that that idea of applying active management to thematics is actually quite novel. It's not talked about as much as it should be. I mean, there's one big fund that people talk about, but the truth is there's, there's, there's us coming in and trying to be create this for, for the world. So I think that's where we're going, right? This set of products that people can buy that are really good and they can rely on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a fascinating insight to end on. That just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.